following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. We've been looking at the series called uh, Save that we just started last week, uh, What Happens When You Believe. And I apologize, I don't have uh, the printouts for some of you who have been requesting them. I'll get you this message's printout as well as the next sermon on the next uh, time I preach. But it's basically what happens when you believe. And we've, in essence, what we're exploring is all of the different things that happen when a person says, I believe in Jesus. As I mentioned last week, historically, these events that surround belief in Jesus are what have been known as the order of salvation. We think, see these uh, loaded theological words like election and regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. One of the ones that is not on there that is often in this list of order of salvation is union with Christ. And that is arguably a theme that covers all of these, this idea of being in Christ. And so rather than putting it on this list in the order of salvation, what I'm thinking I may do is after we wrap up a look at each one of these elements of the order of salvation, we may spend a week or maybe even two weeks just exploring this whole doctrine of union with Christ. And as you remember, Pastor Paul did some of that during the retreat in the summer. But I want to unpack that a bit more uh, deeply about what it means that we're one with Christ. Um, last week, we looked at election. and We looked at Wayne Groom's definition of it, an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And the point that we made about it is that as much as we feel that it is we who have been seeking God, what the Bible actually tells us, it's God who's been seeking us. We are the ones running away. We are the ones that are lost. And it is God who needs to make the first move. And one of the reasons why we said that the doctrine of election was so essential to the understanding of faith is that we have to understand that when we are lost, we are not accidentally lost. We're intentionally lost, like runaway lost, like we don't want to be found lost. And so there is this, just this bent in the human heart that is ruled by sin, that wants to run away from God, that turns our backs on Him, that in fact hates God. And so the message of election is to say, God needs to be the one that chooses us. He needs to be the one that makes the first move because left to our own devices, none of us would choose God. None of us would make that move toward Him. God has to be the one that takes the initiative in the responsibility. And yet we looked at last week is that at the same time, we see that God has given us a will of our own to be able to choose A or B. And he, will not only, uh, not, he not only gives us free will, but He holds us morally accountable to the choices that we make. In John chapter 5, verse 39 to 40, it says, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, Yet, you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, in this passage, Jesus is clearly holding the Jews responsible for their refusal to acknowledge the truth about him in the very words of Scripture that they are reading. 
saying you are the ones refusing to see the truth right before your eyes. You are responsible for this willful act of denial of seeing the truth about me in these scriptures that you know inside out. You see, the Bible teaches that God does choose those He saves, and yet at the same time we are given a freedom to respond either positively or negatively to this invitation to believe. Now, right away you say, well, that's a paradox. That's a contradiction. There's no way that both of those statements can be true. And some of the difficulty, I think, lies in our simplistic view of free will, of human freedom. Uh, But even getting beyond these philosophical explorations, the truth is there are mysteries here that we cannot resolve. You just can't fix what appears to be this contradiction to complete satisfaction. And I think it's in that moment that we need the humility of King David when he said in Psalm 131, verse 1, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. In other words, rather than just racking our brain trying to solve all the mysteries of the universe and understanding a finite God, infinite God, with our finite knowledge, the message of the Bible is there's got to be a place of humility that you reach in which you say, I just can't wrap my mind around this. I, I can't reconcile what seems to be a paradox. And yet, I have to have faith in a God that is greater than me. And somehow in His infinite plan can make it all work out in ways that doesn't fully make sense to me, of accepting what we cannot fully understand and responding in the way that God asks us to respond as human beings. In last week's message, I presented to you the idea that we need to be chosen by God because we are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, and sins. To say that somebody is spiritually dead basically means you are cut off from God, who is the giver of life. There is a broken relationship with God alone who gives life. And so out of that spiritual death or being cut off from God, there's a lot of expressions of that spiritual death. One of the ways we can say it is that you are deaf and blind to spiritual realities. Um, Another way we could say that it is that when you're spiritually dead, you have no hunger for God, no desire to live for Him, no love for Him. There's just animosity. In other words, unless there is something in us that is brought to life, there is no way we can positively respond to the gospel's invitation. This is where the doctrine of regeneration comes in. Wayne Grudem defines regeneration like this. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. This is sometimes called being born again. And there are a lot of passages that describe this doctrine of regeneration in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, it says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Notice the nature of these two verbs in these passages. Caused us to be born again. Made us alive in Christ. These are 
verbs of action being done to us as the object of that action, not we doing something. In other words, the message is very clear. It is God who brings this new life, not us. The reason why I point this out is because this is arguably one of the greatest areas of confusion in understanding salvation is we think this. I first believe in Jesus, and then I am born again and given new life. That's the logic that most of us think happens in that order. Because it makes sense, right? I was dead spiritually. I came to believe in Jesus. And when I believed, he made me spiritually alive. But what the Bible actually teaches is, you know, you cannot even believe in your dead state. And so God has to actually first make that which is dead alive, even in order to make us be able to believe in him. That is what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to guess that for some of you who always learned it the other way around, this order is probably very disturbing to you. Wow, that just makes no sense. So you're saying that he put life in me even before I believed? Yes, that's actually what the Bible teaches. Because unless God makes us first spiritually alive, none of us are going to make a move in the direction of God. Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And here's the key point. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. The unregenerate heart is incapable of pleasing God, of making even the simplest move toward Him. What I'm saying is, is this. If you have not experienced this regenerating work of God in your life, then chances are you're going to see God two ways. You're either going to be terrified of him or you're going to see him as the ultimate bore. It means that everyone is talking about, oh, isn't God so great and isn't worship so wonderful? And you're going to sit there in that room and say, I just don't get it. I don't see what these Christians are all so excited about. What's the point? For years, I've been tweaking my chicken parmesan recipe because I've been, for years, disappointed with it. Uh, I've tried probably over a dozen of these recipes. Um, I've been obsessed with trying to make the chicken tender and juicy and flavorful and yet having a crispy crust that doesn't get all soggy with the cheese. So the last time I actually made it, I radically reordered the recipe. I totally changed it. Um, and I think I made a quantum leap forward in my recipe. Uh, it took almost three hours of prep and cook time. Uh, to, I, I, you know, it got down to a science, like chemistry lab, for the breading, the right proportion of breadcrumbs to shredded par- parmesan. And then uh, I cooked the chicken in like three different stages using both the skillet and the oven. And when I finally sampled this uh, chicken cutlet, uh, I was ecstatic. I said, this is it. I've reached chicken parmesan nirvana, you know? (laughs) So with great excitement, I presented it to my family. And I said, so what do you think? And my kids were just, you know, eating it, and they looked up, and they looked really confused. And they said... uh, 
Uh, what do you mean? It tastes like it always does. <laughs> and, and they saw the discouraged look on my face. And so not wanting to hurt my feelings, uh, my kids quickly said, because they realized uh, it was a loaded question, and they said, oh, but it's always good, Dad. <laughs> and that made it even worse, because it hasn't always been good. But this one is good. You see, they were culinarily dead to uh, the finer tastes of life, you know? Their taste buds were dead. Uh, Soggy crust, crispy crust, uh, dry chicken, moist chicken. Like, my kids don't care, I realized. They just eat whatever's put in front of them. They have absolutely no discrimination. I think that's a little like what regeneration is like, you know? Like, you either see it or you don't. You're either alive to it or you're dead to it, you know? Remember there was a time when I brought a friend, a doctor friend of mine that I was working with during my residency days, and I shared about this experience before, to church. Uh, This guy was a hard-drinking guy addicted to gambling and, you know, was like really into women. He lived a really crazy life. And so I have no idea why he accepted my invitation to come to church with me. Uh, but the whole time we were in that service, I was just, I couldn't focus on the service because I was so nervous about how he was receiving everything. And so I just kept glancing over, glancing over, seeing how he's reacting to everything. And in the midst of it, I just, I realized he was just not getting into it, you know? There was just something about, he was not connecting with anything and uh, you know, the sermon came around, and I thought it was a great message, but he was looking at his watch like he was bored, you know? And uh, a few days later, when I saw him in the hospital, I asked him, you know, so, hey, what did you think, you know? Uh, and uh, his singular comment to me was, uh, that was okay. Uh, you have some cute girls in your church. <laughs> That's all he said. So I really was just kind of scoping the women in the church during the whole service. And I was just so deflated, you know? But as I was processing that experience, I began, it was weird. Like, I never looked at that service through the eyes of a non-Christian before. And to me, I go, man, that hour and a half is just so sweet. Like, there's something so awesome about that worship that, like, when you're just caught in the throes of that worship and you feel the Spirit working in your heart, like, in my mind, I'm thinking, like, who could not be in that room and move by the Spirit in that way? Well, the answer is, Someone who's not spiritually alive could go through a service like that and think, my God, this is boring. I can't believe all these people waste two hours every week sitting through something like this. And it made me think, like, I go, the songs are so awesome. Like, how could the songs not touch his heart? But when I really began to think about it, I go, like, songs are okay. (laughs) You know, like, it's not like a U2 concert, you know. It's not like it's going to blow you away with the musical, the musicality of it. And that's when I really began to realize this idea of regeneration, that unless something comes alive in your heart, unless there is something awakened, God is a bore. You kind of look and go, I just don't get it. I don't get it. I don't know why everyone's always talking about God, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Like, frankly, I just don't get it. I don't understand. What's the point of all this? I don't know what gets these guys so excited. Why Some people are raising their hand. They're looking like they're in ecstasy. Like, I don't understand any of this. 
And that's the truth about spiritual life. There is something either alive in you or dead in you. Are you alive to God? Do you see him as someone who is beautiful and worthy of that worship? Or do you just go through the motions and look and say, I just don't understand, you know? And so as we saw with the doctrine of election, unless God makes the first move, there is no hope for us. I want to take a closer look at this doctrine of regeneration through this encounter that Jesus had one night with his Jewish leader by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It begins in verses 1 to 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus, this ruler, this teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus at night and starts this conversation with what appears to be pretty glowing praise of Jesus, acknowledging that he was performing these miracles that were clear signs that God was with him, that he was a messenger of the Most High. And this seems to be a really promising start to what is going to be a spiritual conversation. But strangely, Jesus does not seem to be impressed with Nicodemus's words to him. Instead, in verse 3, Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In other words, I think what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus is, great, you've been wowed by my miracles, and you're impressed. Whippy-doo. It's sort of like saying, look, listen, Nicodemus, witnessing my power doesn't really mean you have faith. It doesn't mean you have spiritual life in you. You don't need faith to be wowed by a miracle. Witnessing demonstrations of God's power doesn't mean you are saved. And that's the truth for many who attend church all of their life, is that you can be in the presence of power. You can see it and witness it, but just because you're in the presence of power doesn't mean that there is life in you. As Jesus points out, unless you are born again, experiencing evidence of power doesn't mean much. Being religious doesn't save you. Nicodemus is totally confused by Jesus' response. In verse 4, Jesus, Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. You see, in Nicodemus' world, salvation meant being born a Jew and living a good life to earn God's favor. To be saved meant to be a good person. And as long as you play the game by those rules, Nicodemus was winning. I mean, you don't get much higher than Nicodemus, a spiritual leader who knew the Bible inside out. He couldn't be in a better position to win the favor of God and be saved. <clears throat> but what Jesus does is he shatters all of Nicodemus' existing categories of salvation. And he says, listen, Nicodemus, let me break it down to you real simple. 
You're either born again or you're not. You're either alive or you're dead. There's nothing else. That's it. It's not about what leadership positions you hold. It's not about how many good things you do. You are either born again or you're not, and that determines your entire destiny. And Nicodemus cannot wrap his mind around this. Jesus is almost talking in a foreign language because nobody talks like this. Being born again, and he's like, what? I don't even know what you're talking about right now, Jesus. It made no sense to him. But Jesus is saying, to be saved is to have new life, period. And, and, And Nicodemus is like, what are, you, what are you even saying, like, as a grown man, I'm supposed to crawl back in my mother's womb and then, like, come out again? And, like, he's trying to understand, like, what, what are you talking about here? But you see, Jesus uses this birth metaphor to emphasize the point, Nicodemus, you cannot contribute to this. You're, you're not a partner with God in this act. Just like you didn't participate in your physical birth, you don't participate in your spiritual birth. It's something that God has to do for you. Otherwise, you're hopeless. You're lost. You see, in all my years of being a doctor, never once did a baby reach out its hand and go, come on, grab, grab, and say, take a hold and say, give me some leverage here because I'll help you out here, doc. (laughs) Never once happened, okay? None of us participate in our physical birth. The baby just has no choice in it. Comes out passively. And Jesus uses that as a metaphor of spiritual life. This is what God must do for you. I hope you're recognizing the struggle here because I struggle with this. Because in so much of my understanding from a young child growing up in Sunday school, salvation was constantly drilled into me about what I need to do, about the decisions I need to make and choices I need to make. But when we really look at these mysteries of Scripture, it's amazing how much of it actually points to a work of God that is independent of us, that really rather makes us feel helpful, helpless, doesn't it? I'm not sure I like this picture of salvation. I think, in fact, Jesus understood this tension, and that's why he pressed further with Nicodemus in verses 5 to 7. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. In the Old Testament, water almost always symbolized purification, cleansing, of our sins. Therefore, I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, when you are born again, a key component of it is that you are completely rebirthed into a new creation, a new person. You are set free from the sin that once held you. That is one of the most striking characteristics of the born-again person, is you have an entirely new relationship with sin. You have a whole new start. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says this, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, I need to clarify something here. John is not making the claim that as Christians you will never sin again. The sin struggle does continue, but as he says, there is a seed planted in you 
that has given you a power that you did not have before. Because once your life was dominated by sin, once you were in bondage of sin, you were a slave of sin, as Paul tells to the Romans. You had no choice in the matter. But when you are born again, you have been released from that power. You now have a power of God at work in you that you never knew before that can enable you to have victory over sin like you never had before. Jesus goes on in verse 8, though, and he says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus now compares that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit with the blowing of the wind. In other words, it is totally unpredictable. It is totally out of your control. You see, religion is predictable. Religion is a formula. One of the comforts of religion is that it gives us a sense of control, doesn't it? I follow this set of rules, and God does this for me. I live like this, and I get salvation. But the picture that Jesus gives is completely different. He is saying, Nicodemus, God is beyond your control. You have no control over him. You don't force his hand in any of this. He is like the wind blowing through a forest. You don't know exactly where that wind is going to go. You cannot manipulate God with religion. He is the one that is totally in control of this. He does whatever he pleases. And again, I want to say this is not a very comforting thought, is it? Because the truth is, I think there's a side in every one of us that wants to be with the control God, to make God predictable, to do the things we want him to do. But that is the mystery of salvation that none of us can fully understand. There have been people that I've known in my life that seem this close to the kingdom. But they've been like that for years. And yet they still remain unsaved. And there have been people in my life that for a million years I never would have thought they would have believed. And they believe. And you're stuck going, wow, can't believe it. It's amazing. The wind blows wherever it pleases. God is God, and He is in control. When that regenerative work happens in a person's heart, Ezekiel describes it like this. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27 in the verse 31, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds. And you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I think this is an awesome picture of regeneration. It's taking a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. I want you to picture that heart of stone that is incapable of being pricked. If you take a needle and stick it in a stone, what happens? The needle bends, doesn't it? 
It's the heart that is always blaming everybody else for your problems. It's never you, is it? It's always somebody else who's at fault. It's that lack of self-awareness, that hardness, that no matter how much you are destroying your life, there is never a point of recognition. It's me. It's me. It is this heart that is hard toward God. All of the things that you hate are projected against them, and you see God as your enemy, as the reason for all of your misery. That is the heart of stone. And yet, here is the heart of flesh, is when you prick flesh, it's sensitive. There is pain. It is a picture of a person who is tender. It is the person who is sensitive, who is self-aware, who is capable of repentance and says, it's me. I am the problem. I am the one at fault. It is the heart that is tender Toward God. All my life I've been blaming you, God. But finally, my eyes are open to see you are actually the only beautiful thing in my life. You are beauty. You are worthy. You are goodness. It is the heart that is capable of lifting hands in worship and finding joy in finally realizing the purpose for which you were created was to worship Him. I often wonder that even here at ICC, if you are not a believer, and maybe some of you in this room are not, and and you're welcome here, and we're glad you're here. We're thankful that you're part of what's happening here, but the truth is that maybe even for some of you, when you look at these folded chairs put out in this junior high gym, and then you see all this here, like, this is bizarre. I don't get it. It's just, and then everyone's so patient, listening through this 40-minute talk. Like, when's it going to end? I don't get it. Like, they're just flashing all these Bibles. When every once in a while he shows a video, and then it's kind of interesting when he shows movie clips. But if there's no movie clips, it is tough to get through that 40 minutes, you know? And you're, you're kind of going through all of that. And, you know, what can I say? It's, it's this heart of flesh that suddenly makes something come alive in us that says, I desire you, God, and as imperfect and as amateur hour as our worship service is, there is something that moves in my heart when I'm in this room and I'm worshiping God that resonates at such a deep level that says, here I am, God. I am here for you. And my heart delights to worship. I long for this hour every week. I long for the temple of the Lord. I long to sit here in your presence, God, and worship you. You see, you can't engineer that, can you? You cannot will yourself to that. This is something that God must do. It's always amazing to me when I witness somebody being given this heart of flesh. It's an awesome thing to witness. If you ever watch, sometimes when I go and speak at outside retreats, I'll meet this guy that's very fervent in leadership and doing awesome things. And then every once in a while, whenever these retreats, like the pastor will tell me, uh, oh, yeah, that guy, uh, Joe, like, you should have known him like five years ago. <laughs> like, he was an unbearable, uh, wretched man, you know? And I look and go, 
get out of here. There's no way. Because this guy's like a teddy bear, you know? Like, and then he's telling me stories. Going, oh, yeah. Like, he used to beat his wife. And he was like this rich businessman. And he was like, didn't care about his kids. And he like neglected them. And, and then he met Christ. And he's like this. And when I look at it, it's like there's almost this like disbelief going, no way. No way. But that is this power of regeneration to change the human heart, to take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I shared with you this illustration from John Piper before, but I want to share it with you again because I think it captures so well this picture of regeneration. Let me get at this with a provocative question. If I asked you, how do you know that you were born from your mother's womb, what would you answer? You would answer, I'm alive. I exist outside my mother's womb. I'm here. And that's right, and that is all the answer needed. You would not answer, I know I was born because I got a birth certificate at home. Or, I know I was born because I did some historical research at a hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and found a document with a little footprint on it that matches the curly lines on the bottom of my foot. Or, I collected signed affidavits of three or four witnesses that saw my mother pregnant and soon after saw me in her arms. You would simply say, I know I was born because I am alive. But now suppose I ask an average evangelical churchgoer today, how do you know that you were born again? How many would answer, because I am alive to God. I have a living hope. I have a living faith. I once had no spiritual life. And now I am alive spiritually with spiritual appetites and spiritual enjoyments. Once I was dead, and now I am alive in God. I know Him. I love Him. I trust Him. I hope in Him. I follow Him. The proof that I was born again is in my life today. How many rather would answer, I know I was born again because I did what you must do to be born again. I asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed to receive Jesus. I walked down an aisle and accepted Jesus. I have a card here in my wallet that I signed on June 6, 1952, where I pledged that Jesus is my Lord. Point well taken, right? How do you know that you're spiritually alive? Not because you attended a youth camp one day and went to that altar and signed a pledge card. You ought to know that you're spiritually alive because of what your life looks like right now in the present. Because the truth is, you once had that heart of stone. And God has given you that heart of flesh. Let's pray. Listen, I, this doctrine of regeneration is pretty, it's, it's pretty controversial. It's, it's even pretty offensive. And this is not the way salvation is typically presented in most churches, I would even say. So much of the focus is on what you need to do. And at the same time, I think you can hear this message and sort of feel fatalistic about it and say, well, you, you actually have described me pretty well. Um, my girlfriend has been dragging me out to these ICC services. <coughs> and if I'm really honest, I don't get it. I don't get what all you guys standing around me are so excited about because I think that this is kind of silly. Uh, you know, the songs are just mediocre and the, the speech is, I don't know, 
don't even understand half the things that are being said. And I want to tell you, it's okay. I'd rather you acknowledge that than put on a mask and try to act like you get it. One of the things that we see in Scripture is that even in the response to a doctrine like regeneration, the invitation of God is never fatalism. To put your hands in the air and go, so what's the point? I don't even get it, so then why am I even here? Why do I even try? That's never the reply that we're invited to respond with a message like this. Like I said, in the mystery of how God works, the Word of God is still to us that if you hear the invitation go out to you, this day. Don't resist, but open your heart to the work that God wants to do. There is a place in the Scripture's testimony and witness that invites the person who hasn't experienced this yet to seek God, to cry out to Him. Say, God, have mercy on me. Maybe that's where some of you are in this room, is you realize that picture that you're describing, that is not me. I can acknowledge that much. That is not me. And there's a place to come before God and say, Lord, help me. Help me in my lostness. Help me with this heart of stone. I want a soft heart. I also want to challenge you, some of you in this room, who have experienced that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. You can actually remember that season of your life when God took that heart of stone out of you and replaced it with a tender heart. You remember what that moment was like when you broke down and those walls of defense were, came tumbling down and that fortress that you surrounded yourself in all your life finally crumbled and you surrendered your life to God. But the truth is, even living in this new life, all of us can backslide. All of us can start to forget what that was like. And we begin, even as Christians, to start blaming other people. We start harboring a root of bitterness in our heart toward our spouse, to our coworkers, to our parents, to our friends. Always defensive, always blaming other people, always complaining about what's not being done for you. Listen, I'm going to argue that you cannot engineer your way out of that hole either. But just as you started by the work of the Holy Spirit to give you new life, what the Bible says is walk by that Spirit to keep that tender heart. And maybe that's the prayer that some of you need to pray is going, God, I remember that moment when my heart was so tender. But when I look at my heart right now, I don't feel a lot of tenderness there. Frankly, even as a Christian, I realize sometimes I'm just phoning it in and I come to these services and I'm not, my heart is not in it. I'm not engaged. I, I frankly find you a bore sometimes, God. I don't, want to even, I don't even remember the last time I opened my Bible because I don't even want to anymore. I believe that the Holy Spirit can make your heart soft again. But we need to come to him with that confession and say, Lord, soften my heart. I remember how soft it once was, how tender it was. I remember what it felt like to be moved by your spirit. And it was beyond rational thought. Like I couldn't even explain it. 
but I was just there in that service, or I was just doing my devotions, and again, I felt that overwhelming presence of your Spirit ministering to me, and I was brought to tears, and all I could say is, God, you are so beautiful. You are so lovely. There is only one good thing in my life, and it is you. Maybe that's not the testimony that you feel your heart is resonating with this day. I want to invite you to seek the Spirit of God once again. He'll say, wash me clean. Cleanse me, Lord. Soften my heart. And let me experience again that touch of the Holy Spirit in my life. Would you just pray that for a a minute or two? And our worship team is going to lead us in a time of response. Let's pray. Thank you.